Awesome. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I already feel like we've just drunk deeply from the well of God's presence and worship and um, just together. There's some mornings where I literally just feel like, man, I don't even want to get up there after that. And so uh, thank you, team, for, for leading us so well. Um, we're in week number two of a series that we're doing called Zero Faith. And essentially what we're doing for this month is we're looking at our vision as a church. And our vision stated simply is we are not done. Frontline is not done until there are zero people living unchanged for Jesus in our community. And so as Brad was just saying a minute ago, we're challenging everybody during the month of September to just take your next step. We have these five zeros and we've said, take your next step of faith uh, toward Jesus in your spiritual walk. Take your next step of faith. And so that's what we're about. That's what we're looking at. So last week we, st- we started out talking about faith steps. What is a faith step? What does that actually entail in our lives? And today I want to talk about our perspective, what we actually see as it relates to our faith. Um, I'm always amazed. My wife and I have four boys, the ages 17 all the way down to 10. I'm always amazed at how my boys can have such dramatically different perspectives, such dramatically different versions of the exact same event. You know what I'm talking about as parents? It's like they'll, they'll, one of them will run in the room and, he hit me. And the other one will say, no, I didn't. I didn't hit you. I touched you <laughs> with my fist multiple times, right? But and, and it's like, I'll literally sit there and listen to them when they go on and on and on in these, in these different battles with each other. And I'll be like, how can you guys have such different versions of the same event? You both were there. How is that possible? And of course, it's possible because of perspective. They each have their own perspective on what happened and how things took place. And similarly, I wonder if sometimes we do the same thing with God. I wonder if we run to God, our Father, with our version of events, with our perspective of what's going on in our lives or whatever's happening at the moment. And I wonder sometimes if God wants to give us his version of our lives, his version of events of what's happening in our lives and what's happening um, around us and in us and through us. Um, You see this all through the Bible, by the way. In the Old Testament, you, you see King David, when he's just David the shepherd boy, he looks across that battlefield and he sees something different when he looks at the giant Goliath. He sees something different than all the other Israelites see, right? They're all cowering in fear, but there's some perspective he has. David looks at the giant and somehow he sees his next opportunity, the opportunity that God has placed right in front of him to do what God's called him to do. Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus, when he looks at sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, Jesus somehow sees something different when he looks at them than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious authorities see. He sees his father's version of their story, his father's version of their lives. That's what he sees. Somehow he has the capacity to see something different than everybody else sees. And and I believe God wants to give us his perspective on our lives. And I, and I feel like a lot of times we just miss that. And so uh, if you're writing things down, this is kind of the main idea where I want us to go this morning. And this, this idea that greater progress in our faith really begins with greater perspective. Greater progress in our faith. If you're saying, man, I wonder what my next step of faith is. How do I grow my faith, my relationship with God? Greater progress in our faith actually begins with greater perspective, not greater power, greater perspective. It begins with what we see and how we see our lives and what's going on in our lives around us. 
So last week, if you were here, um, we began, we're looking through the life of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet Elijah for this month, and we're just kind of looking through his story and what God did in him, and there are several faith moves that Elijah had to make. And so last week, we began his story. Um, Elijah has this showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. There are 450 prophets of Baal, and there's one prophet for Yahweh, for God, and that's Elijah. And there's this huge showdown that happens, and it's after an intense drought. And so Elijah, the story ends with God consuming the, the, with fire the sacrifice on the altar that was uh, Elijah's sacrifice, and the drought is over, the rain comes, and God's people all turn their hearts back to them, him. Yay! Everybody turns their hearts back to God. It's this glorious moment, this powerful moment in Israel's history. And so we're going to pick up the story there this morning. What you need to know is that now that Elijah has done this, you would think this was the greatest moment of his life. You'd think he'd be at like an after party somewhere, just like celebrating. But what you have to remember, and we talked about this last week, is that it was King Ahab and his queen, Jezebel, his wife, who had been leading the people of God into Baal worship. The king and the queen have been leading Israel, God's people, into this false god worship, Baal, this false uh, idol that they were worshiping. And so after this moment on Mount Carmel where all the people turned their hearts back to God because of what Elijah did, there is now this furious anger that's being unleashed against him. And so the king and the queen in particular, her name is Jezebel, which is just an awesome name. You can't make that up. That's really her name. She is going after him, and and she's going to kill him. And and they've basically sworn, we're going to track you down, we're going to find you, and we're going to kill you. And so instead of it being a high moment of his life right after this big faith step, it's a very low moment. And we're going to pick up the story there, 1 Kings 19, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. So this prophet that was so bold in, in last week when we looked at this story, he's absolutely terrified. He flees for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. There he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. For I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Now, what I want you to pay attention here is his perspective. I want you to zero in on just where his headspace is at this moment. He's going on alone. He's choosing to be alone, and he is at a low place. Literally, if you've ever been in a place in your life where you've literally said, God, I just want to die. If you've ever had thoughts of taking your own life. Have you ever had moments where you've just been so low that you just wanted to be done with it all? God, would you just kill me? If if that's you, if if you've ever been there, you are in good company. Some of the greatest people that God used in the Bible had those same kind of moments where they just wanted it to end. Now, thankfully, God doesn't do that. Even in the midst of of Elijah's very dark perspective, God doesn't grant that wish. Thank God, uh, sometimes he doesn't answer the prayers that we actually ask for. And so Elijah doesn't die. God provides him with food. And so they keep, um, the story keeps going. It says, so he got up, uh, so he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember that, that's significant. He travels for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. Now, the way the writer says that sentence, he travels 40 days and 40 nights to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai. By the way, that's the mountain of God, in case anybody didn't know it. He, the, the writer's trying to cue us into something. 
Uh, Mount Sinai, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know Mount Sinai is where Moses climbed, and it was the moment where God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. The law was given on Mount Sinai to Moses. And by the way, Moses received that after he had spent 40 days and 40 nights climbing that mountain and fasting. So the writer is very careful to tell us he eats some food and then he doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. He climbs, and where does he go? He goes, of course, to Mount Sinai. What's happening here? The writer's trying to clue us in. Elijah is going to where the big moment happened for Israel, where God rescued his people and gave them the law. And so the expectation here for Elijah is, I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to go to Mount Sinai. I'm going to do the same thing Moses did. Maybe this is going to be another Ten Commandments moment. Maybe God's going to do for me exactly what he did for Moses. But oftentimes, God really doesn't appear the same way twice. So through the Bible, you see that. He, just, he doesn't repeat himself a lot. But you see what Elijah is doing here. He's, he's desperate. And so he's hoping he's going to meet with God. So he goes to the Mount Sinai. Forty days and forty nights have gone by. And he meets with God. Let's look at that interaction. Go ahead. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I love that. I love that that's his meeting with Elijah. If you don't find the humor in that, then you're not paying attention. Literally, he's like, oh, I'm finally here. I'm at the mountain of God. And God's like, uh, what are you doing here? And what's interesting about Elijah's story, you'll see this over the weeks, is that Elijah's story is marked by God again and again saying, go here, do this. God keeps directing him. And this is the only moment in Elijah's story where God is like, what are you doing here? I didn't, I didn't send you here. Why are you here, Elijah? And so look at his response. Again, pay attention to Elijah's perspective as he gives his version of the story to God. Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left. I'm I'm on this mountain all by myself. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Do you hear his perspective? You know what the question is underneath Elijah's words right here? And I can almost promise you at dark points and moments where you've been working your way through some horrible experience in life, you've had the same thoughts. The question that's underneath what he's saying here is, go ahead to the next one. It's this question. Can I quit yet? Please, can I, can I be done now? Can I quit? When do you know when it's time to quit? When do you know when it's time to just be done? Uh, I heard Erwin McManus uh, recently at a conference I was at say this, everyone seems to need permission to start, but no one thinks they need permission to quit. (laughs) Isn't that true? You think about our world. Everybody seems to need permission to start. I don't know if I'm ready to start this or to take on this new adventure. Somehow we feel like we need people to give us permission to do that, but nobody feels like they need permission to quit things. People don't feel like they need permission to quit on a marriage or to quit on a job or to quit on a commitment that they made or to quit on a church and go to somewhere else. Nobody seems to need permission to do that. Just If I feel like it, I just quit and I just walk away. So so the question becomes, when do you know when enough is enough? When do you know that it's time to quit? When do you know it's time to move on, to be done with the relationship, to be done with the situation you're in? I'm not saying there aren't times where God says, enough, you need to back away and you need to be done. There are times where he does do that. But how do you know? How do you know when, when it's time to quit, when you've had enough? 
Go ahead, let's go ahead and look at uh, verse 11. This is uh, the way God responds to Elijah here in this moment. It says, go out and stand on the mountain. Go, go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, now what's happening here in this moment? It's such a bizarre interaction between God and Elijah here. What, what's, what's going on? What, what you need to understand in this moment is that uh, wind, earthquake, and fire in the ancient Mediterranean world, these were the, they were actually the three signs, the three natural disasters that people would have understood at this time that it was divine punishment for a deity, from a deity. Okay, in other words, if you knew somebody and they died because, in an earthquake or they had a family member or whatever that died because there was a, a, a windstorm that came through or there was fire specifically, maybe lightning struck and there was a fire and they died, they would have instantly in that world, they would have understood that as, oh, a deity did that. Some God did that. Clearly, they're being punished for what they did. And so you got to understand, in this moment, as Elijah's watching the wind and the earthquake, and he's going like, yes, this is what he wants He's like, yes, the wind, the fire, the earthquake. Yes, this is awesome, God. He wants to quit. He wants to be done with what God's called him to do in his life. Faith steps over. I want to be done. And he wants God to sweep in with divine punishment and just rock his enemies. He wants him to just come in and just wipe them out. And, he, and not just wipe them out, but wipe them out in a way that they would have understood as divine punishment. I am being wiped off the face of the earth here by a deity. That's exactly what Elijah wants in this moment. And it's, what's interesting is you, what God does here in this moment for Elijah is it's almost like Yahweh responds by saying, Elijah, I could do that. You want to see the wind? You want to see the earthquake? You want to see the fire? I can do that. I've got that power. But Elijah, if I did that, then the people would know no difference between me and all the other gods. And Elijah, I ain't like the other gods. And that's the point. I'm not like anyone else. And nobody is going to confuse me with what they think about all those other gods. That's not how I operate. That's not how I work, Elijah. And so what he does is he begins to speak to Elijah in a gentle whisper. And so Elijah has to actually calm himself down, and come close and listen in order to hear it. Uh, I live in a very loud house. Having four boys is loud. It's loud in the car when you're driving places. It's loud at dinner time. It's loud at bedtime when you're trying to, to get everyone to wind down for the evening and go to sleep. Noise from voices, noise from electronic devices, noise from bodily functions all the time. It's like a festival of irritation, always happening, always going on. And for some reason, I don't know why, God has seen fit to give my beautiful wife, Carrie, the softest voice known to man. I mean, she is just so quiet. Her voice is quiet. She, she doesn't, even when she tries to shout and yell over the noise that's in my home, nobody hears her. 
She just doesn't even have that capacity. So she refuses to shout over the chaos. And so what I've learned is that if I want to know Carrie, if I want to know what's going on in her heart and in her mind, if I want to know what's going on in her life, I have to actually go with her and we have to leave the house where it's loud <laughs> and we have to go on walks together. And this is like a thing that we do uh, multiple, most days of the week. There's a couple days of the week usually we don't, but most days of the week we actually will go out on a walk in the evening together just to be together and to talk. And I'm saying even in January we do this. We bundle up and we have walked out in the middle of a snowstorm just to walk and talk together because that's how we can interact and actually hear each other. God is the same way. He's saying, look, I don't shout, Elijah. I don't do that. That's not my style. You've got to quiet yourself. You've got to come closer and you've got to listen if you really want to hear me. If you want to hear what I have to say, you've got you to quiet yourself and you, wanna, you need to come closer to me. Verse 15. Then the Lord told him, Go back, or maybe it's go back the same way, right? Because he's whispering. Um, go back the same way you came, God says, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel Mahola, to replace you as my prophet. What I love about this moment is God is now giving him commands. Remember, God, God didn't command him to come to the mountain. And he's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? But in this moment, now God is speaking and he's saying, here are your next steps. Here are your next steps. Here's where I'm sending you, Elijah. Then he ends by saying, yet, I, yet Elijah, I want you to know something. I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. What's he saying there? He's saying, you're not alone. You've isolated yourself. You've got up to this mountain all by yourself. I'm the only one left. They're all trying to kill me. I'm, it's just me. God's like, you are not alone. There's 7,000 others, Elijah, who have not bowed their knee to Baal. There's 7,000 others. You are not alone in this moment. So what God's doing here in this moment, if you can understand it, is God is not offering Elijah a way out of the situation he's in as much as he wants that. Can I quit yet? Please, can I just be done? God doesn't offer him a way out. He offers him something better. He offers him a way through. And the only thing that's better than a way out when we're in a place of suffering in our lives and a situation that we just can't make sense of, the only thing better that's a, than a way out is a way through. In fact, oftentimes the only way out of it is a way through it. God begins to speak. Here you go, appoint this person, appoint this person. And by the way, there's 7,000 others. You are not alone, Elijah. That's what God's saying to him in this moment. I, know, I don't know if you've observed this about our world, but I, I, I've been noticing lately how if someone leaves somewhere, everybody asks why. If someone leaves or someone quits anything, everybody wants to know why. But if someone stays for a really long amount of time, nobody asks why. Have you noticed this? If somebody gets a divorce, people are like, well, why? What happened? Please well, tell me about what, what, what took place here. But if somebody stays married for 50 years, nobody says to them, why did you decide to stay married to this person all this long? Have you noticed this? Nobody asks why when somebody stays married for their entire lives. If somebody leaves a job, people are like, well, what, what happened? Why? Did you quit? Did you get fired? What, what took place? But if someone stays <laughs> for decades at a job, nobody says, why? Why did you stay? Nobody wants to know the answer to that question. I've been thinking about this because last month, 
uh, my wife and I celebrated 20 years of marriage. And, um, and that's quite something if you know uh, a little bit about our story. And um, Frontline is 18 years old right now. I've been here at Frontline for 17 of the 18 years, 11 of those as the lead pastor. And so I want to tell you this morning, I want to give you a gift. (laughs) I want to tell you the secret of longevity. Not because you're asking, because nobody really asks. They they would only ask if I divorced my wife and left. then, Then they'd ask, why? Why did you do that? But nobody asks why you stay. So I'm going to tell you the secret to longevity, the secret to staying somewhere a long time and seeing God bless you through the hard times, through the difficult moments, and and see God actually enter into your situation and redeem it. Here's, Here's the secret. You have to have a shift in your perspective. It all comes down to what you see. It all comes down to how you see the situation that you're in. People who are able to stay and are able to work through the situations they're in and actually see better days on the other side are, you know, versus the people who just get stuck and eventually just quit and leave, there's a difference in their perspective. There's a shift of perspective that happens in their lives. And, and by the way, it's the same perspective shift that God is trying to get Elijah to understand here on the mountain. And this is, this is the easiest way I could put it into words to, to explain it. The perspective shift is from God is doing this to me, right? This is what people say. When they get into a tough space in life and they get into a tough circumstance in their life, they say, well, God is doing this to me. Obviously, I've met so many angry people lately, in, in this church even. And when I say angry, they're angry at God. They'll literally say to me, I'm just, I'm just angry at God right now. I'm just really angry at God. And I'll say, why? It's because of this, this top line here. Because they're viewing the, the situations they're in, they're like, God is doing this to me. How could he? How could he do that? And the perspective shift is from God is doing this to me to where you actually begin to see the circumstances of your life and say, no, God is doing this with me. He's actually doing this with me. He's actually entering in. If you notice, God never explains suffering in our world. He never explains our suffering. He just enters into it with us. Look at this story very carefully. Elijah never gets a good explanation on the mountain. That's why he's there, by the way, following in Moses' footsteps. I'm hoping to get, I mean, he's hoping God's going to go, oh, Elijah, I'm so glad you came to the mountain. Let's sit down, buddy. Let's sit down and have a little talk. Let me explain all of this to you in your life. God's like, what are you doing here? I'm not done with you yet. He, he, he wants to be with Elijah in the midst of what he's going through. And that's the perspective shift. The perspective shift to stay and work through things and see better days on the other side comes by beginning to realize God is not doing this to me. God is doing this with me. He's entering into the situation I'm in. By the way, the gospel works in the exact same way. The God, that is the, the heart of the gospel, if you think about it. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, oh, the Jews, you know, they just want a miraculous sign in order to believe. And the Greeks over here, they just want wisdom. They want this like uh, wisdom statements being made. He says, but we preach Jesus Christ crucified, which just seems like foolishness to all of them. 
And it does, doesn't it? It seems like foolishness that Jesus Christ crucified the gospel, the message of a suffering Messiah. That God doesn't appear to us to explain all the things that have gone wrong in the world, explain why they're suffering and why things happen, as if that would actually help us if we had a real, okay, now, now that I have a good explanation for all of this suffering, then everything's okay. God comes and he enters in to our suffering. He lives as a human being and he dies as one of us. And he doesn't just die, he dies in order to redeem all suffering. And that's the gospel. That's the hope that we have. God doesn't say, I'm doing this to you. He says, I want to do this with you. And if you let me do this with you, you're going to see that I have the power to enter into your suffering with you, and I have the power to redeem it. I have the power to bring something out of it that you could never possibly believe was there. So here's what that means as the band comes. It means I can suffer from something, or I can suffer with someone. That's the choice we have. Notice there's no uh, scenario here where you don't get to suffer at all. (laughs) I just get to avoid suffering. No, I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. We're all going to experience some level of suffering in our lives. And the choice that we have is I can suffer from something or I can suffer with someone. What God is saying here to Elijah is you are only as alone as you choose to be, Elijah. And And I would say that again to you today. You are only as alone in the midst of whatever it is you're going through as you choose to be. God says to Elijah, I reserve 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You are not alone, Elijah. What are you doing here on this mountain? What are you doing? All alone, you've isolated yourself from everyone else and you're on this mountain. I didn't tell you to do that. (laughs) You're only as alone as you choose to be. This is why groups matter so much. As we talk about our next steps of faith, I'm just going to say it this strongly. There is no reason why every single person at Frontline should not be in a group. Every single person at Frontline should be in a group because groups are where life change happens the most. Groups are where we begin to see our our lives in context and our perspective on our lives gets broadened and we begin to see God's perspective on our lives because we're in community with others. You are only as alone as you choose to be. And if you're mad at God, how could God possibly be doing this to me? You need to hear today that what God wants to do is he wants to be with you in it. He's not doing this to you. He wants to do it with you. And if you let him do it with you, he will redeem it. He'll be with you in it. He'll give you a way through it. And you will eventually get to a point in your life where you will see that he is redeeming it. For me, I, I can honestly stand here in front of you and say this. I am thankful for the hard years in our, in our marriage. Grateful for those hard years where I was more of a failure as a husband than I would care to ever admit to you publicly. I'm grateful for those years because what we have now on the other side of those years is far better than anything we ever had before those hard years. I'm so glad we didn't quit because we have something better now. He was with us in it and he's redeemed it. And I can stand here and I can honestly say that to you. I'm thankful for cancer because I am more alive today right now than I ever was before my diagnosis. I am thankful for the hard years at this church. And let me tell you, we've had a few. (laughs) 
I'm thankful for the hard years of this church because I am more excited for the future. I'm more excited for the vision of what God is doing in us, the storehouse, the things that God is moving and working in people's lives. I'm more excited for where we're going now than I ever was before the hard years. And that's what he does. When he is with us in it, he has the power to redeem it. But you are only as alone as you choose to be. You've got to let him do it. You've got to let him be with you in it. Here's how I think we're supposed to close. Would you just stand? Everybody in the room, would you just stand up? And um, next week, we're going to move on to a much happier uh, place. Elijah gets off the mountain, don't worry, and uh, the, the story moves on. But uh, as we think about faith steps, as we think about where we all are today, and for some of us, I just felt like even as we were, I was preparing this sermon, I felt like God was saying, there are some people uh, in this room who are on the mountain right now. Like you feel like you're on the mountain right now and you're angry at God and you want to quit. Maybe you came to church this morning even as kind of like this like, you know, I'll give God one last chance. And what you need to know is that he wants to be with you in it. So I wonder if you just bow your heads with me for a moment before, before we sing. I wonder if there's anybody in this place who would just want to say right now in this moment, I'm, I'm ready to let God be with me in it. Would you just raise your hand up right where you are? I'm ready for God to be with me in it. I'm going to let him do it. Thank you. Praise you, God. Thank you. That's awesome. It just begins with saying, for all of you who have your hands up right now, just, it just begins with, with just saying, God, I turn to you. I come to you. I confess you as Lord of my life. Would you be with me in it? For some of you, you've, you've made Jesus Lord of your life, but you haven't let him be with you in what you're going through. Others of you, you've never made that decision today, right now. God, we just come before you right now. We confess you as Lord. We recognize that you didn't come to give us a good explanation. You didn't come to give us a way out of our situation. You came to do something far bigger and far greater. And we acknowledge this morning that you came to be with us in it, to enter into our suffering and to redeem it by your resurrection. And so we claim that power, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is alive and at work in us because we believe in you. And so God, we just ask you to be at work. God, I pray that even this week, especially for those who just raised their hands, God, that they would just see you at work, that you would just give them eyes to see, as you prayed all the time, Jesus, eyes to see and ears to hear, perspective, your perspective on their life, on their situation, that you would give them the gift of being able to see how you are at work, even in the midst of this moment, even in the midst of what they're going through, God, would you allow them to see it? Would you allow them to experience it? And so this morning, God, we thank you for who you are. We sing out of not just not just a full heart because for some of us we're singing out of a place of emptiness and brokenness but we're singing out of a place of faith of faith not in ourselves not in our power but in what you can do and so God we just ask you to move we ask you to speak and we sing this morning we declare this morning that through it all you are God you are with us in Jesus name everyone said